My favorite thing ever written about Adam Rippon described him as our first nationally recognized and respected faggot. And it's true. When Adam was competing in the Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang, South Korea, the entire world fell in love with him in a way that I'd never seen for someone so overtly and unabashedly gay. We celebrated him, we cheered him on, and not despite of his sexuality, but in part because of it, in addition to all of his other accomplishments. Now, as a gay person, that was incredible to see. And since that moment in February of 2018, when he was competing, I have been emailing with his publicist, and I'm very happy to say that I finally convinced him to sit down for an interview. You'll hear us talk about his figure skating career, about the backstory behind his much-talked-about dispute with Mike Pence, and how he finally got over, as he would say, his intense dieting. At one point, he was living on three slices of bread a day. And then, since he's now retired, we talk about what's next. From Luminary Media, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is LGBTQ&A. Thanks for being here. I'm so excited. Thanks cool. for having me. Yeah, me too. Let's do it. I want to start with the Olympics, and I promise we'll move off it fast. Okay. <laughs> I want to know, you were in Pyeongchang in the Winter Olympics. Was there one specific moment when you realized that America was starting to fall in love and maybe even obsess over you? I think, you know, it's so funny. I was talking with my boyfriend the other day, and before the Olympics, we were talking about how I would call him at like a specific time, like every day, like it was very organized because my life before was super organized. I knew exactly what time I was going to the rink. I had just a really like athletic schedule. Right. I sent him a message and was like, I'm going into, you know, we weren't dating at the time, but we were talking. Um, but I, I said that like, I'm going to the main village because when I first got to Korea, I went to this city called Chungcheong. And I was there for a few days. It's kind of typical that some of the different sports will have different training centers that they'll rent out for that whole month so that athletes have a place to like escape the village if it becomes like too pressure filled. So US figure skating had this training facility in the city called Chungcheong. And I was talking with him and I was like, I'm going into the city. And he was like, the next day, he's like, everything was completely different. You're in a bubble over there. So there wasn't a specific moment where I was like, shit, you know? It, it just, it, there was never like a moment. I think when I came back home from the games, that's when I realized that, oh, okay. I have more followers on Instagram. Right, because you got back to America and then automatically you were a celebrity, <laughs> right? I mean, it kind of felt like that, yes. Are you able to be like relaxed and comfortable like just in public? I think back to all the things that I went through to get to the games, and I think they prepared me for the moments that I were to have after I would go to the Olympics. I feel really grateful that I went at 28 because I really n knew who I was. I knew what I stood for. I knew what I wanted to say. I knew how I wanted to represent myself um, at those games. And so when I came back, I felt really comfortable to, you know, go on the, you know, the Colbert's late night show and meet Reese Witherspoon. And I just felt like, you know, it felt normal. 
in a way that like it shouldn't have, I guess. Yeah, because if you were 16 with that level of fame, all of a sudden, it could have been a disaster. Yeah, I probably would have diarrhea shit myself to death. Oh, that'd be so fun. Yeah, great. it would be great. It would be really a good diet. You know? Totally, agree, yeah. yes. <laughs> because on this side of like the world, as the new stories are coming out about you know this person named Adam Rippon, it was so exciting because it felt like the first time we were celebrating this unabashedly gay person mm-hmm. on like a collective national level. And that felt so special and new. And I just like, kind of wondered what that felt like, like from your perspective. You know, it was, it was interesting because growing up, I think there have been so many times where somebody who's like me is told that there's only like a level of success that you can get. You're only allowed to be like the best friend or the gay best friend. You're always the sidekick. And I never felt that way. <laughs> probably because like I'm a little delusional um, and my own biggest fan. And so I think that when I went to the games, I just, I never had that perception of like, I'm only allowed to be so much. I never went in, you know, being gay first. Of course, it was like the big talk of like being one of the first out athletes to compete at the games for the US. But I went into every situation knowing that I was going to get along with whomever the interview was with or whomever I was going to be meeting that day. And that was like my priority first. And and being gay was just always a fun, trivial fact about me. Yeah. A lot has been said about the Mike Pence moment. Mm-hmm. You turned down a meeting with him and cited his anti-LGBT stance. And you said that you didn't want to make the Olympic Games about Mike Pence. Mm-hmm. And I think that is such a mature and wise like response to that did you consult anybody or have any like mentorship in that i did i uh, before i so i was getting ready for the games you know of course like the the interviews kind of ramp up a little bit so my normal schedule getting ready in the last like three weeks before the games was i would have i would do interviews in the morning i would go to the rink and then work out and everything but every morning i had like two hours set aside to do a bunch of different like interviews One morning, I had an interview, and it was with USA Today. It was with this journalist, Christine Brennan, who's like reports on all different types of sports, and I've known her for years. And because she's known me for a while, she's like, I'm going to ask you some tough questions. You can choose to answer them in any fashion that you want, but just I want to remind you that the Olympics are coming up, and there's going to be a microscope on any athlete that says anything. And I said, Christine, give me your worst. And um, she asked me about Mike Pence leading the athlete delegation. And, you know, I spoke just honestly about what I felt. And I think that, you know, Mike Pence has a long history of anti-LGBTQ plus stances. And um, that's what I said. The next day, I did my interviews in the morning. I was training and I went and I checked my phone. I had like seven or eight missed calls. And I'm like, okay, great. What did I do? So I call my agent at the time back. And he told me that the vice president's office reached out because they would like to talk to me. And of course, at first you hear this and you're like, oh my God, the vice president wants to talk. This is great. Maybe I can like make a difference. Like maybe this is my chance to help make a positive change. And just to be clear, this was in response to your interview. Yes. Okay. So I thought about it for maybe a day and I talked with... um, a few older gay people that I know, and I asked them their opinion. And they said, you know, take a step outside and just and, and think of 
yourself, not in your own situation. Like, look, look from the outside in. And I did, and it was the best advice because I was like, this is just an opportunity for me to just be corrected when I know I'm not wrong. So I just denied and said that, I, you know, I don't need to take a phone call. I'm not going to do it. I need to focus and I need to train for the Olympics. It's the thing I've been waiting to train. Like, the, everything I've done in my life was help, leading up to going to those games and having and being the best that I could be. And I didn't need that distraction. I didn't do anything to, like, amplify this situation. But when I went to the games, somehow it leaked that the office did reach out and I denied a phone call. And when I was asked, I was like, you know, ask my agents. They know the answer. I don't need to, like, dive into this. I, being an American and going to the Olympics, like, you have to represent your country. And you need to do everything that you can to, to be your best. Because you can say all of these things and all of these important things, but if you go out and you fuck up, that's what people will remember. They'll remember that you had a big mouth and you couldn't step up to the plate and you choked. And I knew that. And that's why it was so important for me to focus on the things I needed to, because I knew that I was saying things that were really important to me and for them to be taken seriously, I needed to show up as a serious athlete. And so this kind of just snowballed from them denying that it ever happened to going back and saying that it did happen. And, you know, the, the media coverage really picked up on that. And then before we were getting ready to go to the opening ceremonies, it's like you have the vice president tweeting at you that he supports you and that, you know, he supports all the athletes. But, you know, I didn't need to dive into it then, but you, that's great that you support me. But when I go home, you don't. You don't support me if I want to get married. And that phone call that you want to have was never for me. It's for the people in Indiana whose lives you really challenged. It's for the you know, black trans woman that isn't allowed to use the bathroom that she just wants to go to. That conversation wasn't for me. I, my life wasn't affected by legislation that Mike Pence pushed. So it was never a conversation I needed to have with him, but it was a point that I felt like it was important. I didn't feel like it was a, a, a thought out choice, you know, by the administration, like many other unthought out choices. Right, and you could have met with him, but like, is he gonna listen? Probably not. Well, what is he gonna say? He didn't know who I was in like five minutes before he read the article. And I'm sure there have been so many people in Indiana who have gone and tried to share their story and show how much their life has really changed because of things that he's pushed. And, and, and to be honest, like when I looked from the outside in, I was like, you know what? He doesn't know me. He didn't know who I was. And fuck him. I love that. You mentioned all the many hours of training that you used to do. Mm -hmm. That is a so much time spent doing a physical activity. Yeah. <laughs> now that you're not doing that, did you worry how your body might change? Oh, hell yeah. Um, and it did. Really? Yeah, I think the it's just crazy because you spend so much time, like when I was training full time, I was skating at least four hours a day. I was working out at least another two hours. So that's already, you know, six to, seven hours of working out a day, and then all of a sudden you go from that to like making fart jokes on like nighttime television. So the cardio output of fart jokes is way less than seven hours of working out. The, the hardest thing was getting back into the gym because you get that endorphin release so often and on a daily basis that 
I only uh, that you you miss you miss that you miss those endorphins pumping because they make you feel good, and then all of a sudden they stop, and you start to like kind of feel this like wave of like depression almost, where you're like, what am I doing? I'm not moving. I'm not I'm not being active anymore. It was like such a huge part of my life. Then you go to the gym, and you're like, I don't even know how to work out because I don't know how to do anything except like train to go to the Olympics when like, I just, I can't do that anymore. And you've been told what to do in the gym for all these years. Yes. And, and you know, like when you go to the gym, like as a normal person, you, you want to like, you know, look nice and you want to be like, cool, I, lo I look good. And when you're an athlete, like that's not, you look good by default, but it's not what you go there for. You have specific things that you get ready for. And it's like, I don't need to do those like, all those little drills that I did anymore, and I didn't even know what to do, so I was like, I can't even go. So it took me a while to even like mentally get ready to go back into the gym. But I would assume for an athlete that a lot of your goals were performance goals only for your body, yeah. but it seems like it was also equally about the visuals, right? Well, I think so many people, I think, from the in the skating world are focused on those visuals because you want to aesthetically look as good as you can. For me specifically, I had to really watch what I ate because I needed to make sure I was really slight. Not because I was like, I want to look as thin as possible, which was great, but really because, you know, I'm closer to 30 going to the Olympics and, you know, the people that I'm competing against are in their late teens, early 20s. Sometimes, sometimes they're shorter than me and, you know, they're, they're much lighter than I was. So I needed to do everything I could to, like, physically, you know, tailor the, you know, I, I would always think of myself as, like, a robot. Like, what do I need to do to, like, make this robot work better? And it was like I needed to just really watch what I ate. I needed to work out all the time. And yeah, that's what uh, like that's where my focus was. My focus was on how do I make myself perform the best. At one point, you said this was a few years ago that you were eating like three slices of bread and yeah. drinking a lot of coffee. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you do you call that an eating disorder? I would say it was disordered eating. Okay. I wouldn't say it was really an eating disorder. I think when people think of eating disorders, they go right towards like body dysphoria. And I never looked in the mirror and was like, I don't like what I see. I, I was really lucky not to struggle with that. Obviously, when somebody's telling you they're eating just a few slices of bread and like a yogurt, that like something's wrong. But that came from a place of me trying to control a situation, which I guess is a, I'm describing an eating disorder. Um, well, I mean, I just, I'm, I don't want to label it that if, it's, if you don't. I think that when I think of eating disorder, I think of somebody who looks in the mirror and they don't like what they see, so they try to change that. And I, I think I took it from a place of control where like when you're an athlete, you know, if you don't, if you feel kind of tired, if you feel a little slow, it, it's over. Like you're not gonna perform your best and there's nothing you can do. If you wake up that morning of like the competition, you're like, I just don't feel great. Like you have to push through that. And it's a lot. And in, in those circumstances where you feel like I can't control anything, it felt like something I could control. When I was eating like that, um, I ended up breaking my foot. And I think it had a lot to do with like not really eating properly. I didn't even do it on the ice. I did it like warming up to go practice. But when I broke my foot, it was one year to, until the opening ceremonies of the games. 
And I moved out to Colorado Springs because there's an Olympic training center out there. And I said, I'm going to do everything I can when I'm here. So I would go to the gym and do all these like band exercises on one leg or whatever. I was just doing whatever I could. But I also sought out to work with the nutritionist. And um, I was just like straight up with them. I was like, I really, I don't want to get bigger. I don't have like problems with like body image. I'm just like, these are who the people I'm competing against. They're weighing in like 20 pounds, 30 pounds, sometimes lighter than I am. This is the goals. These are the goals that I have for my body because I think this is how I'm going to perform better. And then we worked backwards of like integrating foods in. And then when I had the knowledge, I was able to control it in like a sensible way. And thank God you were honest with this person too. I was like, I have nothing to lose. Because I, I, I was like, you know, I, I think my friends who I was close, who I was close with, and who I was training with, were like, Adam, that's not good. You can't like be like, we're going to dinner, and you're like, yeah, I'm just gonna get like steamed vegetables and a water, and like when you haven't eaten like lunch. And, but it's scary because that sense of like hunger is like something I still associate with like good. And like, you're doing the right thing. So it was like really pushing through that of like trying to fuel myself for the right reasons. Have those feelings kind of come back now that you're doing more on camera work? Um, they've come and gone because there's also this sense of like liberation where it's like, oh, I can eat a cheeseburger every now and then and like it won't affect my work. You know, before it was like, you know, if you go you go out and you're like, have McDonald's, it's like, you're gonna suffer because you're gonna feel like shit. You're gonna like gain some weight. And, and it affects like what you do for a living. But you know, now doing things like more in the entertainment world, if you gain a few pounds, it's not do or die. You can still be funny. You can still be like quick witted. So you don't lose your wit when you like gain weight. Gotcha. That's good. It is. That's great because I gained weight. And, but I think the one thing is, is that like I really learned that I, I like being active. I just had to really relearn how I was active. Yeah. That's a big difference and change in your habits. Oh, yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> how often do you ice skate now? I probably skate a few times a month, which is totally different than from what I was doing before. But now when I go into the rink, it's because I really want to be there and I have to set the time aside. So I have to like really, you know, schedule it and, and go in and it's because I want to be there. It's because I want to enjoy being on the ice because it's something I've done for my whole entire life. It's something I'll never not do. I don't think it's something I'll ever stop doing. I feel really lucky to be doing other things, but like it's sort of like my therapy, like my meditation. You once said that there is a taboo in the figure skating world about being gay. Mm -hmm. um, from the outside, it seems like the gayest sport of all time, right. frankly. <laughs> yeah. um, I just wonder if like, you can explain that dichotomy. You know, I think growing up, if you're a boy and you figure skate, you're teased. Like, oh, you're gay. I, I was, you know, called gay before I even knew what it really meant. And everybody in figure skating is not gay. Of course there are gay people in figure skating. There's gay people in all sports, um, whether they're out or not. But I think that there's this already preconceived notion that if you skate, you're gay. And so I think when there is a boy that skates and they're not gay and they're straight and they have a girlfriend and they're really celebrated 
I think in a way so that it doesn't scare other boys from getting involved. I don't think that I was ever, I think before I came out publicly, there was definitely a worry of mine that I might be judged differently, that I might be that stereotype that everybody doesn't want involved in the sport. But at the same time, it was so important to me because it, you know, being gay was never something that I felt like defined who I was. It was just a part of me. And when I came out and when I was able to like embrace that, I felt like more powerful as an athlete. I felt more sure of who I was and more sure of the decisions I was making involving like my career. And I, th I thought that's why it was important for me to come out publicly. And now that one of the most famous figure skaters in the world is gay, has that made the sport more accepting? I think I was really accepted being out. I don't think it was ever a secret. You know, I was carrying around a messenger bag since I was 12. So I, I think that it wasn't really a shock to anybody. The biggest thing is this also preconceived notion of how we think we'll be reacted to. And it's that that is, I think, a big worry. But I think at the end of the day, I'm so lucky because in sports, people are rewarded for consistency, for good performances, for results. And so I knew that like, if I wanted to be an out athlete, it was really important to me that I was at the top of my game, that my athletic performance could be celebrated and also you could know all of these other things about me. Gotcha. We are almost out of time, but you and your life are in a really unique position that you worked your butt off for years to achieve a goal, and then you did before you turned 30. Like, what is this time like now for you and that like adjustment? Um, it almost feels like starting over. It's crazy to have a moment in time like that. I think athletes in particular, I think, uh, I think people who graduate from college might feel the same way where it's like, you know exactly what you're gonna be doing for the next few years. You know that you're gonna be in school, you're gonna be studying towards this degree. In sports, you have this one goal, it's the Olympics, to go to the Olympics, to medal at the Olympics. And you go and you have that moment and then it's over. As, as it, like, in the blink of an eye, it's all over. And then you're like, what do I do next? I think the things I've gotten to do, like in entertainment, and I love making people laugh, I love talking with people, I love interacting and learning other people's stories. I, I love being an entertainer, like even as a skater, that's what was my favorite part. I always had to pretend it wasn't a competition and that it was like a show. So I feel lucky that I knew what, to, that I, what I wanted to do next, but it, it does feel like starting over because everything I do, it's like I've never done it for work. I've never done it professionally. Of course. So last question, but best case scenario, what will the future look like? I hope the future looks like me, but with a fat bank account. <laughs> because of what job? <laughs> oh, because of the job. Okay. I, I love comedy. I love making people laugh. I would love to do something within that space. I really like hosting things. I feel like uh, I'm able to connect with people really well. So I hope it's a job that I'm able to do all of those things. Awesome. And if you know a good one, let me know. Do you want my job? <laughs> <laughs> no, you're doing a great job at your job. Well, thank you. We just say goodbye. I'm sorry. Uh, well, I had so much fun. Thank you for me having too. me. Me too. Thanks. That is it for today. We'll be back next week. Until then, come find me on social media. 
I'm on Twitter at JeffMasters1. That's a great way to connect and recommend guests. We are brought to you by Luminary Media, Neon Hum Media, and The Advocate. The Advocate magazine is the world's leading LGBTQ news source. Come find us at theadvocate.com. LGBTQ&A is produced by Jonathan Hirsch, Zach Stafford, Gabriel Horton, Isabeth Mendoza, and myself, with sound engineering by Scott Somerville. We'll see you next week.